Welcome to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And a lot of times people are they're critical of restaurants, they're critical of chefs, and that's totally reasonable. But sometimes, if you're in the business, you have people that are your heroes, right? Mm-hmm. And so today we wanted to talk about some of the chefs that are inspirational people for us and some of the chefs that have been heroes, or we think that people should notice or have been heroic in their influence, mm-hmm. and also talk a little bit about winemakers that I, that I think of as almost like wizards, that is not having mm-hmm. proper ability, you know, not having uh, having a little bit of preternatural ability. I th- well, I think there's some chefs that have, you know, we're, we're just absolutely gifted, so it's the same sort of thing. And you were showing me a cookbook that you had that had... A, tomato aspic in it and so when I think of <laughs> that was so cuisine before the modern American cuisine I always think of that sort of entertaining mm-hmm. my grandmother's entertaining right right which was some sort of form of classic French cooking that was made possible through gelatin I think in the United States and the, and the good housekeeping <laughs> and the cook, 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 right yeah. and McCall's magazine no that was probably patterns but yeah yeah <laughs> all those ladies magazines were often had recipes and things in and that influenced how women cooked, for sure. I still have a bunch of her cookbooks. Whose? My grandmother's. Your grandmother's, I yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. With all of her notes in them. Yeah, which is super cool. I've seen those cookbooks, and they're very special. I mean, I so, think I think there's not only the influences from, you know, let's say, for me, obviously, I, I tend to think from French uh, standpoint, but also not only are there chefs, but there are a few writers, and I think that those people are um, important to, to talk about, too, but... I mean, you know, when you talk about heroes, I mean, you have to start with Escoffier, and that's going way back. So, you know, let's move forward from Escoffier to Fernand Point. And when you talk about a wizard, I think Who, that... Who's not someone that you knew? Right, right. No, no. I've, and passed away in, I think, 1955. He was absolutely a genius in the kitchen and was a gifted, gifted chef. And... You know, he was very influential because he demanded the best product and he cooked the way he wanted to cook. He cooked, um, you know, when you say, what are your influences? I mean, I really didn't know that much about Fernand Poin when I first started cooking. I knew a whole lot very quickly about Georges Blanc and Michel Garrard because those were my first two cookbooks. Uh, my father gave me Michel Garrard's book, uh, book when he was really uh, moving from classic French cooking into doing basically what then was called spa cuisine, which was really meant from from his standpoint to be just healthy cooking. Um, not necessarily something to lose weight on, but just to look at it from a fresh, bright, new perspective. And um, and and for Georges Blanc, who was influenced by his mother's cooking, but um, was trying to also step away from his mother's cooking and move into the future. And those two men really influenced, you know, whether it was repeatedly looking at the photographs and their, you know, and especially in Georges Blanc's cookbook, um, Marcelo and I used to sit at the table after work each night and and we would go through the cookbook because frankly Marcelo was learning too. He had he had not been a chef. he taught himself how to be a chef, Marcelo Vasquez, my my mentor in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And um, you know, he was teaching himself as well as he was teaching me and uh, that book really um, inspired both of us greatly. Pointe is the is is the definitely the father of the modern chef restaurateur in France. 
uh, you think about the guys that were in that kitchen. I mean, the Twelgro brothers were in that kitchen. Bocuse was in Bocuse the kitchen. Bocuse was in that which kitchen. Which is crazy to think about. Um, One of the greatest chefs that's You know, yeah, and, and on and on. Living. But, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the number of Michelin stars that were actually in his kitchen. Like being prep at, cooks. At one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were starting as, at the as bottom. Teenagers, <laughs> and, yeah, it was sort of amazing. Yeah, he was a huge influence. My favorite Fernand Pont story and continues is, to be. is about his morning routine. Oh, yeah. He had a heck of a, go ahead and say it. It's a good routine. <laughs> so he would he would sit in the yard in front of the restaurant <laughs> and have someone shave him. Yeah. And while he was doing that, he would consume a bottle of champagne. Yeah, I always heard it was a magnum. Uh, he was a big guy. He was a big guy. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> That's I have quite the morning routine. I have Greek yogurt <laughs> and muesli most mornings. <laughs> and apparently, you don't shave. No, not so mm-hmm. much. No, he, he he was his well. Not what I started to say too is his influence was so great in that not only was he getting great local product, but um, and demanding fresh brilliant product, but he was very much about using all of your senses in his restaurant. You know, your eyes, your your touch, your sense of smell, your sense of taste. Um, you know, he wanted things to look beautiful in the restaurant. He wanted his tablecloths to feel good and, and napkins to feel good in your hand. And um, he, he his plates were beautiful and um, he strove for perfection with everything that he did, but he was very much about you coming into his restaurant and enjoying yourself. And he was he was a very, I mean, I look at it that he was a very generous, big-hearted person, I am. I assume, because he just wanted people to be happy in his he sounded, restaurant. He sounded like he was plenty fun unless you're working in the kitchen. Yeah, I know. I think he was probably pretty strict, but, you know, that's how you get things done. So strict may turn into some yelling. I don't know. Who knows? Who cares? But the, um, he was very disciplined in his work. The two other stories I always heard about Fernand Pont. Hmm. One, he would not go talk to customers ever. Hmm. He always said, I speak through the stove. I like that. I mean, I like talking to the customers, but that's interesting. Yeah, but that's, that's interesting. I, I, I speak I'd through always, the stove. I, always well, I mean, I that. like that he thought he spoke through the stove. That's that's pretty beautiful, really. And I always heard that he came, he made his kitchen run from the ground up every day. So oh, right. He was the one that threw away all his mise en place. threw away <laughs> anyone. Anyone was hiding mise en place from the day before. That's tough. He was throwing it away. So everything was from absolute scratch, scratch that day. So if you were if you needed stock for something, you better get there really early. Boy, yeah, I can't even and, imagine that. And in those days, you know, if you were the poissonnier, everything that had to do with fish, once it was at the restaurant, was your responsibility. And if you were the saucier, you're obviously the first person in the restaurant because you had to make the stocks because you're making sauce. Yeah, well, I mean that's just when you think about. I mean, we certainly aim that, for that, but that's crazy. I mean, I can't even yeah. imagine throwing away my stock every night. I would cry if I had to throw away my stock every night. I, that's one practice I don't think that any of his have his protégés ever followed as well, strictly as he did. it's so did. extreme. I mean, it's not necessary to throw. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think it's necessary to throw your stock away well, each night. So you know, but I get some, it. Something's I get it. improved. That was his way. That was his yeah, way. That was his way. Oh, I believe soup is better the next day, too, oftentimes. You know, talking about Fernand Point, uh, Tony, you know, his restaurant La Pyramide was in Vienne in France. Um, Just I guess that's just south of Lyon, uh, where a lot of other great chefs, you know, certainly um, work, have worked and continue to work. I believe he passed away in 55. So he was sort of at the height of his career when he passed away, which is, you know, just a shame. But um, he was really sort of uh, well known in the 40s and the 1950s. Who else is on your list? You know, moving forward a little bit, um, Michel Roux. uh, Alain Ducasse, uh, Robuchon, Joël Robuchon, uh, Freddy Giardet, uh, of course, Bocuse, 
the Trocco brothers, which you already started to mention. I mentioned Michel Guerrard and, and a woman, uh, Eugène Brasier, who was sort of like the mother of French cooking at, at the time in the mid uh, 20th century. And, um, you know, her cookbooks were really, really uh, highly respected. And, and um, she was she was just absolutely a diehard perfectionist and, and really made probably the more rustic French cooking and was famous for it. And a lot of people used to go to her place to eat. So that's sort of like the, the set of people that, you know, that, that are backbone of what, what's, what headed towards modern French cooking of now. Right. right. Uh, and all <clears throat> were people who, through books, through reputation, through talk, you learned about. I learned about a lot of those people too. Mm-hmm. So is there a member of that school who's cooking that you were struck by the first time that you had it. Oh my gosh! I mean, when when we ate at Michel Garard's restaurant um, in Eugene les Bains in the in France, which is just south of Bordeaux, it's about an hour and a half south of Bordeaux. If you fly into the airport there, you can take a car to his place, which is a very small village. I definitely was unbelievably and greatly inspired by his cooking after reading his books for so much of my career and getting to finally. I mean, I think the first time uh, went there was probably what, six or seven years ago. And um, it was it was a mind blowing experience for me because his his food was so beautiful, so every aspect of everything on the dish was just incredible, and everything came together perfectly, and everything was inspirational, and um, everything was just so honest, and um, uh, you know, just well, I couldn't have dreamed of it to be any better than it was. It was just his incredible. cooking is beautiful, but doesn't feel manipulated. No, it's very satisfying, but doesn't feel heavy. Right. Well, I mean, that, the man has a wood burning fireplace that he cooks in in his kitchen, along with all of his modern equipment. I mean, he he absolutely is. If he's cooking a bird, he's probably doing it on a spit over a wood burning fire in that fireplace. I mean, it's incredible. The other person that very few people know about is is um, Guy Julien at uh, La Beaucaviere and. Mondragon, the southern part of France well, and the southern ex- Rhone Valley. I would expect him to be on your list because you've often oh my said gosh. he's your favorite. He is. In a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But his food is different, you know. I mean, he's a very different chef from Michel Garrard. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful that I've had the opportunity to taste both of their food because they both influence me. Well, it's a much more, it's a much more simple mm-hmm. style of cooking and less... You know, less sort of fantastic on the plate. And I think also, you know, a restaurant is is all is the entire experience. And going to Beaugraviere, I mean, I was surprised the first time we went there because the restaurant isn't fancy. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a nice looking, simple restaurant. Um, it's not like it's a, a cafeteria. I don't mean that, but I mean it's it's a it's a pretty restaurant, but it's it's not fancy. It doesn't f- it feels warm. What it comes down to is the restaurant is warm because of the chef and his wife running the restaurant. Tina could not be the nicest. She she is the nicest person ever. I mean, she just exudes warmth and love and uh, just great spirit. And to be in her room, you know you're going to be well taken care of. Um, you know you're going to be well looked after. You feel warmly greeted when you walk into the restaurant. You know she's happy you're there. She and and then her and the men that work with her, um, Danielle and and uh, the other guys that work there. Oh my goodness, they've been there forever, and they're just so you know just the perfect professional. And they they you know Danielle knows that seller back and forth as you know. And you have to because it's not organized in any particular fashion. <laughs> but I mean, it's just and Guy comes out and you just want to you know you just want to run up and hug the man. I mean, he's just such a wonderful 
warm, wonderful person and such a great chef and yet humble and, you know, just down to earth. And guy comes to work in his tractor, for goodness sake. You know, I mean, he yet he has some of the best truffles I've ever tasted in my life. So, I mean, he has access to and the best squab I've ever had. I mean, he has access to the best product. And I mean, to me, he's a brilliant chef. Um, and, and it comes down to simplicity. And if you read about Fernand Point, um, who we were talking about before in Vienne, uh, France, um, back in the 50s, I mean, his, 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 whole, his whole thing was about perfection. Everything had to be perfect. And his wife ran the dining room. So she was the warmth, I'm sure. I have a feeling. I don't know because I've never been there, obviously. But um, Well, if he wouldn't leave the kitchen, I don't know that he was the warmth. <laughs> I don't know. So take, take me forward on your list. Not very many people know who Jeremiah Tower was. and is, No, I mean, I is, remember getting the Star's cookbook, this restaurant in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I think it came out in 80 or 81, something like that. He kind of transitioned the 70s into the 80s. He sure did. As far as, uh, you know, not just process, which I know you're impressed by uh, working with farmers and all that sort of business, but in in style, in plating style, honestly, having some creativity and having some fun with plating style and I you know that those those transitions I mean to crazy elaborate stuff and the, frankly to me a, a bit over manipulated things sometimes now and not you know in, in a million different places in the world but that he definitely ignited a lot of that I mean I remember having that book and being like oh you can put food on the plate like this yeah I mean I worked with an old Danish guy and a couple of old French guys and you know, besides hit you, they would teach you to cook it correctly. But, it, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, yeah. I, God love them. But the plate up was sort the, of meat at six o'clock and starch and veg at yeah, you know, I mean, nine I, and one. You know, was, I, I was I was the crazy kid who they really had to kind of watch because I was trying you know, to do something slightly I was trying different. Trying to do something a little more <laughs> expressive, you right, know. Right. So. Well, he, well, I think the th- thing that's fascinating about Jeremiah Tower is that he started off as an architect. He started at Chez Panisse and um, with Alice Waters. And Alice had had opened in uh, 71, and he started as chef in 73. And he came so in. So he made the reputation for the restaurant. He really did, and he did not get credit for it. And I'm sure he got some credit, but, I mean, he, he really – looks like to me anyway that he drove the process and of the food and he was very much into um, classic French cuisine and, and sort of bringing that whole thing forward which was a very modern way of thinking in 1973 and um, just had a huge impact on that restaurant and then went on to open stars and the impact that he had with stars what's so fascinating is that he had one of the first open kitchens. So you could see his kitchen. He had a super long bar. I don't know how many feet it was, but it looked gigantic in his dining room. And his dining room was completely open uh, with maybe like some levels where he went up two steps or something it looked like. But um, it was just this big space. It was in apparently a not very good neighborhood at that time. And um, so I guess it was sort of shocking that he was able to do achieve what he did there, which was like all the socialites were there. Uh, the drag queens were there. You know, I mean, all people of all walks of life were at this restaurant celebrating life, having fun, having a great time. It was, I mean, honestly, when you, you watch the show, it looks like there was a party there every night. Um, and he was in the dining room. Um, obviously, he was cooking. You know, I suspect he was probably cooking in the daytime. And then, you know, as his staff were well trained, he probably felt more comfortable to come out into the room. But I mean, it looked like he was a huge part of the fun that was going on in that dining room. I mean, I got so excited when I watched that show because it just looked so vibrant and what a huge impact that was because that's a huge change in the way a restaurant operated, not only his impact on cooking. 
I mean, which is huge, but also his impact on how a restaurant actually looked, felt, operated, everything. Taking away some of the rules for a serious restaurant. Yeah, I mean, S- the people serious are in restaurant there having means a good time. serious, serious cooking, mm-hmm. and you know, it's and whispering it's, in the dining room. Yes, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, if we went to a fine dining restaurant, we were all talking very quietly, and it was it was almost overwhelming, you know, especially as a kid because I was sort of hyper, and you know, I mean, to sit I can't there, imagine. And, oh God, for me to have to sit there, you know, and I love the food part. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's the way they used to be. And he kind of opened the door to, uh, okay, we're going to just have a great time here. And we're going to serve you some really great food. And you're going to have some great wine or drinks or whatever. And we're all going to commune together. We're going to be together. All People from all walks of life, let's hang out together and break down barriers. How unbelievably cool is that? Not, everyone's, not everyone's good at that. No, that's super exciting. So, he had well, a huge impact. When we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, We'll keep going on the list of chefs who are heroes. I might even get a few of them in there. <laughs> Sorry, Tony. All of that and more in Formidable Phone Food and Wine. Welcome back to Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And so you, you were talking about Jeremiah Tower, and we're, we're, we're talking today about chefs who are kind of heroes for us. I mean, it has to be, you know, your heroes, your personal feelings about someone. That, But chefs who are heroes, and, and maybe we'll throw a few winemakers in there that we think... Or and people that had an impact. Wizards. Yeah, an totally. Imp- yeah, because, I mean, I didn't know much about Jeremiah Tyra, frankly, before I watched that show. And it's I, funny. I, I remembered that yeah. book because I, I got that book when it came out. Hmm. I'd like to you see know, that book. That, that's why I got in trouble with the Danish chef I worked with. <laughs> he was not. <laughs> Jeremiah Tyra was influencing no. you at work? Absolutely. That's awesome. I, I recall. That's super cool. I recall doing a, a, a dish with... Uh, Curry and lime, and uh, it was a it was a chicken dish, mm-hmm. and it just got the devil for it. Hmm. But it's like you wanted me to take care of this little party. I took care of them. They <laughs> I loved made this it. dish. It was good. They loved it. Um, I it think actually looked nice. Andre Soltner at Lutessa, New York. Oh my goodness, was definitely an influence. And I think what was cool about well, at least for me, Andre Soltner was a great French chef, and um, he worked every day. I think he almost basically he never didn't work. He he I, literally worked every day of his whole life. I thought he until I he thought retired. he was also famously a skier when they were He was closed. and that's yeah. the other thing I love about him. <laughs> um he would t- I think they were I think they took su- maybe Saturday and Sunday off if not I don't know if they took Monday off it doesn't matter but he had a place up I think near Bear Mountain in New York. So it's not that far from where he was working in the city. Um actually it wasn't that far from where I went to culinary school and I wherever they had a place. He was uh, I want to say he was in um in the army when he was younger and uh he you know was a ski person in the army i don't i'm sorry i don't know what that would be called but um so i mean he was yeah well in the army though so and i ski patrol anyway he was an obviously an excellent skier (laughs) and loved it so he and his wife had this place and you know they would get out of new york the night you know saturday night or whatever drive up in the middle of the night after work and hang out and you know i just i admired that greatly about him because of course i wish that was me (laughs) i I would like to do that (laughs) every saturday night after service drive up to my 
little cabin and go skiing all weekend. But um, he was he was a huge influence, and 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 I think Sultner, um, you know, his demand for quality of product also from his vendors was big. He was famous for that. Um, he had a lot of famous people in his restaurant, and he treated everyone the same, and um, which is probably unusual. And you know, they just they they made great food, and I, I think he was revolutionary for his time for his perspective on things. And if you move from someone like Andre Sultner to Jean-Louis Paladin in, at the Watergate in D.C. Okay, Jean-Louis was a he, huge impact. He definitely had a huge impact in the 80s on food in the United States. He really did. He, he was a two-star Michelin chef from the southwest of France that came as, and as a pretty young guy. Yeah, and, he was in his uh, 20s, late 20s, I think. And came to the Watergate Hotel and opened uh, Jean-Louis. And I recall eating the first time that I ate there. He was a great and you, chef. you walk in surrounded by wine. <laughs> and uh, and you have the Grand Cru, uh, you know, Riedel the Sommelier series glasses on the table that hold, uh, I think, 45 ounces or something oh, like wow. that. That's cool. And you think that this is going to be a very different restaurant experience than I've had before. And it was. Yeah. And there was an intensity of flavor in, in the cooking that was there. He was so And gifted. there were surprises in the cooking that was there. Mm-hmm. And it was also very product-driven. Oh, yeah. I mean... He was also a total character. Right. Yeah, big personality. There was no end of cigarettes well, he, he could smoke. Oh, well. <laughs> and, you know, he, he came and ate at our restaurant, Savannah. That, that was one of the greatest moments of my life as a chef, um, besides the one when I cooked for Julia Child. I mean, I, I adored Julia Child. Just a little bit of a, 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 a move into a different direction, and then we'll go back. But um, I think that Julia Child, James Beard, and Willen, uh, Richard Only, and Patricia Wells are all food writers as well as chefs, and had a huge impact on on our cooking. Obviously, um, whether it was Julia Child being responsible for making French food accessible to the American public through her shows, Julia Child being on television oh cooking—that's that's the thing. If you know, without that, there's not a whole giant vector of interest in the in the country I, I and agree. food. She was incredible. She was a wonderful, sweet, giving, gracious, amazing woman. And um, as I said, one of the greatest moments of my life was cooking for her. It's funny. I recall exactly what she drank, too. What did she drink? Uh, Henri Bonneau, Chateau Neuf de Pape, mm. uh, Cuvée Marie <laughs> Brouillard, <laughs> 1992. Wow. Yeah. Well, we, we closed. Uh, the restaurant was and closed. She, and she drank half that bottle of lunch. She was like, <laughs> this is great. She's amazing. She was, she's just, anyway, so those people have also influenced, but getting back to uh, some of the other chefs, you can't not talk about Charlie Trotter, who also unfortunately has passed away. But, you know, I I think his influence was uh, not necessarily for me, but it- it, I think it was a style influence on the culture. Well, and also he did a lot of TV stuff. So that was, you know, when you talk about um, uh, some of these guys doing TV work, that was a Big change. Well, I mean, he had a he had a photography production studio right next to the restaurant that's in right, Chicago. He did. That's right. He had a studio. You know, so he, they would do books. He would do books literally right next. Like mm-hmm. he was constantly doing books and and in the restaurant. Yeah, that was super cool space. I, I went there one time and saw that. Also, one of the first restaurants in the U.S. that had a tasting menu only. Oh you know, yeah, right. You know that's yeah, it was it so was a, would, a, a two choices. Yeah, you had two. Well, yeah, at least when I went there, you had two choices: yeah, this you, menu or that menu. Yeah, one was vegetarian at that time, which you're was right. which you're was right. also really <laughs> that innovative. That was very innovative, extremely yeah, innovative. Because you're talking about the '90s, early 2000s. That's you know, think about now versus that's 20 years. Yeah. ahead of an awful lot of folks right now. And also, if you think about, for me, I have to talk about my Southern influences. And I met Edna Lewis at 
Middleton Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina. She was actually, she had taken over the little property, the property there and um, at the inn. And I will never forget seeing her outside gathering wild strawberries. And I didn't completely know who I was Wasn't about she to an run older into. Woman when you met her? Oh, yeah. She was probably in her mid-70s or so. And um, she just, I mean... Uh, especially when I first started really doing low country cooking was in Washington. And um, so this is a woman born probably a hundred years ago. Yeah. She really helped to define uh, uh, Southern cooking by, and her cookbooks are incredible. I love, I still reference her cookbooks. Well, Edna Lewis's, her recipes are pretty darn exact. Yeah. Not every cookbook's recipes are, are as helpful as you would hope that they would well, be. Well, and she had a restaurant in, in New York that was called Gage and Tolner. And actually, we w- did you and I go there? Um, I went, I guess it was before opening a restaurant in D.C. And um, I, I just, I also went to Sylvia's, which is another restaurant. It's in Harlem. And getting the opportunity to go to both of those places and really having collard greens cooked in a traditional manner or uh, any of the you know, fried catfish or any of the real traditional dishes, gumbo or, or perlo or, or anything like that, um, to, to really experience them made uh, from generations of knowledge uh, backing up these ladies. And then the other influences for me would also be Elizabeth Terry, who um, had Elizabeth on 37th and Savannah. I, I assume the restaurant's still open, but she was really between... Uh, uh, and this is also a person who was prominent, like in the eighties. Exactly 90s. right, and you know Edna Lewis was doing her thing. Elizabeth Terry was doing her thing in Savannah, and she was doing absolutely low country cooking in a very beautiful restaurant. This was before Georgia Brown opened in D.C. or before Vidalia opened in D.C. These women really were the predecessors of of taking Southern food from being something done in a in the home. Uh, to being done in a roadside place or a diner or some sort of casual restaurant to being elevated and being done in a very nice restaurant and really being concerned about quality of product and execution and all of that. And really, to me, they were they were the ones that paved the way for any of us that did fine dining Southern food in the 1990s. And I'm thankful for them. Huge. Edna Lewis was a huge influence for me, particularly doing the menu, the original menu for Georgia Brown. I'm going to jump to to someone on my list real quickly okay. because I think you I think you're missing them. Okay. Um, the follow up to Jeremiah Tower, stylistically, it, to me is Alfred Portale. Oh yeah, for um, sure. At Gotham Bar and Grill in New York, I I don't know he may very well still be in, involved there, engaged there, um, but I, I can recall very distinctly the first <laughs> time I had the seafood salad. Yeah. At that restaurant. Very and tall. He was very tall. He was the king of. He, he was, was the one that started yeah. tall food. And he was hugely. He, he, he actually backed down was from that. Hugely influential. He was obviously a very smart man, and he figured out that. And it's one of those things that that helped me sort of understand. You know how much I like sort of engineering how things come out of the kitchen. Having seeing his dishes and and seeing proteins cooked in smaller pieces. But multiple ones on the plate. I'm like, oh my god, what an idea! He just, yeah. he, you can take more time and plate and still get the food to the guest quicker than if you're cooking the giant piece. That doesn't always give you a superior result, but just the fact that there was a thought process and there was a plan to get that done. You know, if you had, and, and the whole talking of how many movements there were to do a plate. Yeah, right. You know, it was a new thought. That's. It wasn't like, oh, you, this is one, two, three, blip, blip, blip. No, it was, 
that's an eight movement plate, you know, or that's a five movement plate, or this is how many steps it takes to construct the I mean, plate. That's that, what you mean. Yeah. That, there's a tapas restaurant that that we opened Paso that I, mean, I literally sat down and had to figure out exactly how many movements there were, anticipate what the menu flow was going to be, and try to figure out, you know, which could go on what station, right? So that people were all doing similar movements, basically, so that things would come out correctly in concert. That was that was kind of a crazy thing, but that definitely came from him. And uh, and I think he had a he also I think had a huge stylistic influence on not just New York food but but all around the country just not just with the tall but using a, a f- not necessarily fusion cooking but making American cooking really inclusive mm-hmm. of things from other cultures seasonings from other cultures I had not really seen that as broadly used as and the restaurant was beautiful as well. I mean, it's a, it, it it's was a great a space. Very, yeah, it's super cool space. Very unusual. Very, very different. You know, those big light fixtures and the way the restaurant was laid out. And, you know, people really, you know, all restaurants probably for a long time had been places to be seen. But I think he did a really good job of having it be a place to be seen as well as as uh, incredible interior design. He's another one. I never saw him out of the kitchen when I was there. I was definitely there a number of times. But I would think he's, to me, he was back in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Cooking. Absolutely. So I'll give you a few other people on my list. Maybe people that you would or wouldn't anticipate. Um, Joan Roca, who, when you think about it, Mm -hmm. he, you know, I was trying to think who. So a chef in Spain. Who might be the most talented? Yeah. Chef in, uh, a Catalan chef um, in Girona and having eaten there a couple of times over the years Mm -hmm. and watched some of his evolution. I was trying to think, who is just like the most baldly talented person? Him. Putting food, the cooking food and putting it on a plate. That have had the cooking. Yeah, he he might be. Well, and he's he's considered right now to be the best chef in the world, so. that Although it's funny, what, I went to that restaurant the first time when there were two stars, before it was the three-star Michelin, and a lot of the dishes I had the first time are my favorites. Oh but my it might gosh. just be it was the, my introduction was the to the cooking. The steak tartare with the mustard ice cream? Oh, my goodness. I don't know if it was called steak tartare, yeah. but it was. Oh yeah, right. And yeah, um, yeah that 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 yeah. experience was you had you had a was it braised pork belly, goat belly, goat belly. Oh, yeah. golly, yeah. Uh, his food was incredible. Well, braised and then crispy. Yeah, that you was know, what was, was so cool. <gasps> the level of crispiness on the skin there. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I wanted but, that plate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the restaurant has a great wine cellar. It has one. His his brother is the pastry chef. He's unbelievably talented. He's easily the best pastry chef that I've that I've Brilliant. eaten anything from, and I like sweets a lot. Brilliant pastry chef. I remember visiting the kitchen, and he's got a little cookbook collection in there, and he's kind of sitting there, and everything is spotless, and the kitchen looks cool and interesting to work in. It's like these guys just come in and play. <laughs> yeah, well, he does molecular cooking, so he had some uh, things in the kitchen that looked like science equipment. Which that that was the first time I I was on that trip with you. That was the first time I ever saw anything like that. That was really fascinating. And then then there were things that you know there was a wood burning oven in the wall. So I mean, it was definitely all mm. worlds in that kitchen. It wasn't just modern. It was no, it was, it was old world to, and new. Willing world. to use anything to play and get a great result. But the result was far superior to anything I had from any other molecular. Yeah, for sure, I chefs. agree. I agree. Huge influence. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't think of anyone that I 
you know, if listeners want to send us their, you know, their their great meal, their epiphany meal, their their hero chef, please email us formanwolf at wypr.org and uh, and give us your thoughts. We're very curious to hear. Absolutely. And uh, when we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we'll spend a little bit of time. I've got one other guy I want to throw in there. Sure. And then let's spend a little bit of time on winemakers. Yes. Okay, good. All of that and more on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. Welcome back to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're talking about chefs who are heroes of ours and also some winemaking wizards that uh, that we sort of found over the years. And at the end of this segment also, Chef Cindy Wolf will cry when she gets her <laughs> chef's challenge. I'm Although sure. usually you're, you, you're a pretty good appetite I like, for... I like chef challenges. It's fun. Everything except for it's the one with weird. the hot dogs. You, well, you didn't that was, like that one. That was kind of goofy, but, you know, that's fine. No, I love hot dogs. Hmm. So who, who else on your list, Tony? The, the big one, you know I love Piemontese food. So I was trying to... Th- like, that. that's incredibly close to my heart. And it's a rich cooking. And a lot of it is not the most complicated. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I had some of the classic Piemontese dishes... Was it Trattoria della Posta? And yeah, see, see, (laughs) none of the French guys made you sigh like that. Okay, Uh, it's the Italian that I named that that's that's, that's got your pulse racing. Mm -hmm. Um, So Gianfranco Massolino is the chef, and he and his wife own Trattoria della Posta, and it's in Monforte d'Alba, in uh, not that far from beautiful place, maybe forty-five minute drive from Torino, in northwest of Italy. And has been at it for a while, and you know, probably twenty-five years or Great so. Chef. And uh, the restaurant's lovely, and the, the cellar is very good. Uh, the cheese cart is about as good as you're going to find. There are two cheese carts in Piemonte that are just amazing, um, which you don't really see a cheese cart in, in most of the rest of Italy. But the care, the amount of care in very simple things, like a, a roasted piece of goat leg. Or lamb leg, mm-hmm. uh, and with the pasta, it's the care, the the ragu that's served with the tyrine, tyrines, the tagliolini, that's so tiny that in Piemonte it has a, a local dialectic name, tyrine. Um, boy, it's hard to make, and they do a tremendous volume of it, <laughs> and it get cooking so it good. is is a little more difficult than any other kind of pasta, I think. Because it's very brief time in the water, but you got to get salt exactly right on the water, and so on. And so on. The amount of care to do that and have the, the ragu balance with uh, the tagliolini—that's hard. And then the agnolotti there, mm-hmm. which you know the little rectangular pastas that <laughs> essentially are filled with a force meat of of a ragu, and that those are just remo- the first time I had those that I felt that care. That I noticed that like extreme respect for basic product and basic cooking. Yes, you know that. That's a big that, influence. That was there, and that's that for me personally. That's a giant influence. From that moment, I've had a certain amount of skepticism. I think towards you know whether it was a lot of molecular food or very very manipulated food. Like why don't we just take the basic thing, give it a lot of care, cook it correctly, thoughtfully, 
and present that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it needs one accent. Maybe it needs a small, you know, the, a small number of accents. And there are a number of restaurants in Italy, from Puglia to Sicily to um, to the Alto Adige, that you know, that that all over the country that that have that in their backbone. But that's the first one where I was. At the same time, I had respect for it, and I just said, "Ooh." And Jim Franco is not a complicated guy, and he just says, "When you talk to him, I cook the the classic dishes of the region, but with a tremendous amount of care mm-hmm. and thoughtfulness." And sure. and anytime something is on the menu, it's a great product. I mean, frogs legs I've had there. It's like That's I, fun. the fisherman brought me frogs. <laughs> so this is the one classic way that we make them with garlic and breadcrumbs. They're pretty great. So, do you like wine? Uh, very much. What wine has changed your life? I think I have to say more of a region than, I mean, you know, for me, it's shut enough to pop. I, I, I never knew how incredible wine could be with food until I really started to experience wine of that region. Oh. I well, mean, Clos de Pop is one of my favorite producers, for sure. Um, Marcoux is one of my other favorites. Lavier Julien, um, all producers from Chateauneuf, um, you know, the- Bocastel. Yeah. But the two wizards, the people on my list, uh, winemaking wizards, have both passed away, one oh, relatively recently. Right. Henri Bonneau, who made that 1992 Cuvée Marie Brouillard. That's some of the best wine I've ever had in my life, for sure. Bonneau's wines. It's a terrifying cellar to be in. <laughs> I mean, you really, you wonder if you're going to fall through a trap or something <laughs> like that. You have no idea how he had things Not fancy. organized. Not fancy. No, uh-huh. I, he was it was Rustic. pretty pretty bare bones and and underneath his house in the village, um, but his stuff Bono is B O N N E A U. Very, very lucky cool history. To have met it's, uh, him. Yeah, he's also told me my favorite French joke, which I will not repeat on the air because it was totally <laughs> inappropriate. Um, and re- and had really really good cassoulet at his table, although I had bad That's breath nice. for three days after it. Mm-hmm. He amazing. But maybe my favorite, maybe the one that I think has had the most magical touch was Jacques Renault, Chateau mm-hmm. Rayas. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And it's nice to see his nephew, Emmanuel, is sort of after some years, after about the, the, his 10th harvest, he was able to move that forward Good. And, and have some of that same touch. But someone had to teach him, and that's that's the wizard. And, and Chateau Rayas is uh, it's one of those things that's, I measure, for me, I measure any other Chateauneuf against Rayas because of the level of expression that the wine has. And it, it, it's an interesting drinking window for that wine. There's a, it, it's always very, very tasty, but it isn't always its most expressive. So you have to wait till you get to a certain point and then you drink as much as you can, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> within reason, without driving. What other influences? Um... I mean, it, it, it's funny. The first person on my list was Soldera. Uh, it's a producer in Montalcino and produces Brunello de Montalcino. And the, the wines are ungodly expensive, and they become that way. But Gianfranco Soldera makes a very small amount of wine. And frankly, I mean, on a personal basis, I like Brunello de Montalcino, but I don't almost ever find them particularly magical. I often find the best Chianti Classico to have more interesting aromatics. I like the balance of the wines a little better. The wines of Montalcino, usually a little chunkier, a little beefier. Um, and they honestly don't age as well as a lot of the wines from from uh, Chianti Classico. 
but Soldera ages incredibly well. Uh, the wine from off vintages, weird vintages, 1986, remarkable, completely remarkable. He, he's one. Uh, De Torri, the producer in Sardinia, the, the completely amazing producer of Cananao. Cananao is a grape like Grenache and Chateau of the Pop. The wines are not unlike Chateau of the Pop. I recall uh, with Lindsay Willie, who we work with, sitting at a table in his restaurant and having only lamb, but lamb charcuterie, you know, salumi, <laughs> and lamb soup with chickpeas, <laughs> and lamb roasted. Oh, and also lamb with pasta, throw it in there. <laughs> And so with the, with the only lamb menu. They had a lamb have, kill earlier We, that we day. had no lamb dessert. Mm-hmm. No, Sardinia, it's, <laughs> it's all about lamb. Right. Lamb and chickpeas. Um, we had their five, you know, five wines that they make. Wow. The two whites. But then we had the reds, and we started to look at the alcohols on the label, and they're giant. Uh-oh. I mean, Chateau de Pop, <laughs> you know, once in a while they'll get to 16, 16, 5. These wines started at 16.5. Oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> it was sort of, you really had to watch yourself. It was, it required a very long walk before driving, I have to tell you. <laughs> um, but he was amazing. Giacosa, Bruno Giacosa, um, in Barbaresco and Borolo, a remarkable producer. And the wines had become very expensive, but I recall the first time I listed those wines on a list and... You know, it was a 1982 Jacosa red label Faletto, or Roque de Faletto, I should say, and the Borolo, and Borolo producer Pimonte. So that, in that close place to my heart, and the the wine, the perfume, I was like, this is, is this what Burgundy wants to be? <laughs> you know, having having done French wine first, um, be, it was because the the profile of the wine is similar, very aromatic, plenty of structure. Very good length of the, for the fruit, and but expressive is like extra sunshine there, you know. There and more spices, but there are a lot of other people on my list: Nicholas Mayo and Burgundy, um, Jean uh, Jean Marie Raveneau in uh, Chablis, Franz Hirtzberger in uh, Spitz in the Wachau in Austria, uh, uh, Francis Egli uh, in uh, Champagne. You know, yeah. who, who really one of to my me, favorites too. There were lots of grower champagnes instead of the big houses, the little producers. But he's the guy who whose quality made me surprised, maybe impressed, <laughs> made me think that you know there's something to this. Serious commitment. So, speaking of serious commitment, I'm committed to giving you things you don't always want to cook. I can't wait. And to that, and to <laughs> that end, we're gonna do a speed round of a chef's challenge. All right. Okay. Lamb shoulder, cranberry beans, garlic, shallot, onion, basmati rice, yukon gold potatoes, broccoli, soy sauce, corn oil, eggs, lemon, ginger, sesame seeds, tofu, pantry, spice rack. Okay. So, um, so I snuck the tofu in there on you? I saw that. I don't, yeah. So the. And you have no stock. <laughs> lamb shoulder, I'm going to rub with uh, crushed garlic, a little bit of crushed onion, and a little bit of shallot. And olive oil. Oh, I guess I'll use corn oil because that's what's on here. So corn oil and the the onion product and salt and pepper. I'm going to rub it into the lamb shoulder. Does it bone in or boneless? Bone in. Bone in. So um, I'm going to actually just sort of poke it a couple of times and make sure that some of that 
marinade's going to go inside the lamb shoulder. I'll just use a paring knife and just make a couple of little slits. Not too many. Um, the cranberry beans are going to cook in water um, with a little bit of ginger. Uh, just for fun. I think that might be very good. Actually, cranberry beans are very pretty. They have almost a nutty flavor. And I'll put some of the garlic, shallot, and onion in there with the beans as well. Um, when they're when they're done, uh, that broth I'm going to reduce down a little bit um, just to get some of that flavor. And I'll finish it with a little bit of soy sauce and a little bit more, a uh, little bit of ginger. So that's going to actually become sort of like a sauce for my lamb shoulder when it comes out of the oven. What I'll do is when the lamb shoulder is roasted, I'll deglaze a pan with that reduced sauce that I just made. Basmati rice, simply cooked in water with salt, um, large pot of water. It uh, should be rolling boil. When you add the rice, um, you let it actually just kind of roll around in there on on a simmer. It usually takes about five to six minutes for basmati to cook. You do have to, um, with basmati, you have to uh, wash it six, seven, or eight times to get the starch off of it. And then I like to leave it in the refrigerator and water overnight. Um, also helps with that starch. So the, that'll be going... Um, I guess I'm going to be, okay, I don't know anything about tofu. I don't know if you can saute it. I'm going to hope that you can saute tofu. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'll do is I'll just deglaze that pan with um, uh, the the lemon. Uh, I'll I'll add the, uh, I'll toast some sesame seeds for it to garnish. And um, maybe if a little bit of that corn oil, since I don't have olive oil, I'll hit it with a little bit of the soy sauce. And um, what I'll do is I'll fry an egg and put it on top. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Okay, you surprised me with the end of that. And it's over. Yeah, it is. Your turn. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is massive. <laughs> it was. All right. Uh, ground pork, tatsuma oranges, pecan, cider vinegar, uh, all kinds of other foolishness. Sweet potato, onion, carrot, celery, lima beans. I love lima beans. Arugula, mizuna, uh, one gallon of select oysters. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do I have any wine? That's the question. It's going to take a lot of wine to make this food. Um, and brown veal stock. Oh, boy. It's an interesting list. <laughs> yeah, kind of, sort of. I want to make sausage out of the out of the pork. I know that out of the gate. Um, sweet potatoes, I want to – we're going to make this very brief and conceptual. Uh, the sweet potatoes, I want to candy those with the oranges and, and – Get a little caramel out of that. Do I have sugar in this on this crazy list? I just want to caramelize pecans a little bit and and uh, make it silly, basically, you know, sort of a gratin of the sweet potato, but a bit sweet. The pork and sausages. Is there anything to season them with? I guess I can make pork meatballs. You can, ah, you really got me with the the ground pork. Uh, the oysters. You give me oysters and salad. I think your <laughs> list is more dastardly than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the parsnips I can fry. The chipling onions I can fry. We can do a little frito misto with that. That's just kind of a fun thing, especially if you have a sparkling wine. Uh, the lima beans, your vegetables are all disconnected. <laughs> uh, the oysters, I'm just going to shuck and eat the oysters That's and and drink some Chablis as I go. Maybe some of the raveno that I was talking about. Uh-huh. I mean, the lima beans you can cook and... And I don't want to cook them in brown veal stock. I could dilute that a little bit, I <laughs> Just guess. Just boil them in water with salt. Yeah, I guess you can. Salt and a little butter and mm-hmm. some of that some of that onion. You hope it's sweet. Carrots and celery. Gosh, what are you? <laughs> yeah, Old-fashioned like, crudite. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, to, to dip into what? <laughs> you just, I mean, you, are you somewhat limited there? Yeah, I can go, I can go feed the horse. <laughs> Carrots, celery, arugula, mizuna. Okay. 
That's All that's right. okay. That's uh, a, I think that was a chef challenge failure. Yeah, on that your was part, a failure. Tony. Well, the ingredients <laughs> were crazy. Hey, I wasn't going to be critical. At least of your I didn't tofu. make you go to the convenience store to get your food. No, but uh. I, I wasn't going to be critical of your tofu situation. <laughs> not on time to be critical of it now. I'm too generous for that. <laughs> well, if you want to contact us, that's all we have time for. Thank goodness. If you want to contact us on uh, social media, you can reach us. You can follow me on Twitter as Chef Cindy Wolf or on Instagram as Chef Wolf. Uh, I'm the real Tony Foreman <laughs> on Instagram <laughs> and also in person. Uh, email us foremanwolf at wypr.org. You can download this or any of the podcasts of our programs, all of which will have better chef's challenges, <laughs> from the wypr.org website. Thanks for listening. Happy Sunday. <laughs>